Built Not Born, episode 54. I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Marsha Redman. Marsha Redman is a master at the art of reinvention. Marsha has reinvented her career multiple times. Marsha started her career practicing at a major law firm, then transitioned to an award-winning investigative and consumer reporter for CBS television in multiple markets throughout the United States. She has also taught MBA students at the University of Maryland. The reason I asked Marsha to come on the show is her current reinvention of teaching professionals worldwide how to up their presentation skills, how to speak with confidence, and how to engage audiences powerfully to get your message across. Marsha and I discuss amazingly helpful tips on how to earn people's attention, keep their attention, and engage the audience you're trying to influence. Marsha's had an amazing career. She's covered the O.J. Simpson trial as a news reporter. She has reinvented her career multiple times, and now she's helping others up their game, find more meaning in work, and make more of an impact in what they do. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button or please give us a review. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Marsha Redman, attorney, former investigative reporter for CBS, and now helping others reinvent their career and make an impact. And remember, life is built, not born. Marsha Redman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm really excited to be here. We are excited to have you. Marsha, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My current work for the last 23 years has been teaching communication skills to lawyers and other professionals. So I'm a professional public speaker. I do workshops, mostly at larger law firms. My heart is working with women, lawyers, women professionals, and executives. Having been in those roles, I feel very strongly that I can make a difference in how they can have presence and have authority and how they can really get their voice out there in a way that allows them to make a difference in the way that they want to make a difference. I want to get into presentation skills, virtual and live, because I know in this new world of COVID, it's a hybrid now where for we, no one ever was virtual, then COVID came, then it was all virtual, now it's in the middle. But how anyone can improve and make their presentation skills more impactful. Also to reinvention, when I saw your bio and doing some research, how you went from law career to investigative reporter for CVS at a major market, consumer reporter for CBS then transitioned and reinvented again into leading and teaching and helping people up their game professionally. But before we do, I uh, want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Key West, Florida. Cool. Yes, I actually did. People always <laughs> say, I've never met anyone who actually grew up there. There are a lot of relatively normal people who were born and raised in Key West. It was an odd place to grow up, I have to say. I, I, I grew up there in the 70s, graduated from Key West High School in 1978. And it is unlike any other place on the planet, for sure. 
but it was it was a nice place to grow up. If you haven't been there, Key West is a two by four mile island, lots of palm trees, a lot of beaches on one side of the island, very laid back. It's really not America. It is the Caribbean, plus some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this is just a random thing that popped in my head. Didn't they succeed from the union at one point back in the day? Yes. Like recently, not like civil war times. We're talking like like in our lifetime. Yeah. 1982. Actually, I was back in Key West right after I graduated from undergrad. I got a degree in broadcast journalism. I moved back home and started doing radio news in the Florida Keys. And about six months or a year later, Key West officially seceded from the union. And the reason was because of the Mariel boat lift, which was a historical event in which a lot of people fled Cuba and came to the United States, Castro opened up, some say opened up the prisons and sent a bunch of other people that we didn't necessarily want. And as a result, the border patrol put up a checkpoint at the top of the Florida Keys. So the Florida Keys, hundred and something miles worth of Island Bridge, And then there's the beginning of the mainland, which is Homestead, Florida. They set up a border patrol checkpoint. So you had to prove who you were to get from the Keys to the rest of the United States. So Key West said, hey, you're going to treat us like a foreign country. We secede. (laughs) And it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was to some degree a PR ploy. It really hurt tourism that people were seeing all these stories about a lot of dangerous folks roaming around the Florida Keys. Key West makes its money from tourism, but also I think it was a line in the sand, but it was a huge event and I got to cover it. Really cool. I guess their soldiers, instead of wearing combat boots, they wear flip-flops or something, right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And they still, every year, they have a big celebration about the Conch Republic. Some of us are ambassadors to the Conch Republic. It was was an interesting time for sure. (laughs) That's pretty funny. How about growing up in the Keys? What's like the most powerful memory you have when you think of your time growing up there? What gets your attention first? Yeah, I think just the, the smells and the way it looked. Later lived in Tampa, Florida, which is in the middle of the state on the West Coast. And I thought it would feel like Key West. Not at all, because it didn't smell the same. So Key West has water all the way around it. The water's warm. There's a certain smell. You can kind of smell the salt water in the air. Palm trees everywhere. You can hear the palm trees. There's just this feeling of what it's like to be there, unlike any other. And I think I've been trying to replicate it in my life ever since. Yeah. It sounds like Hawaii almost. And you go to Hawaii, you have that feeling where it just, it smells like flowers. You hear the palm trees everywhere. You see the water everywhere you go. It's a different vibe. Growing up before you went to college, who was your biggest influence? What you learned from them? The strong feeling I have of remembering high school was probably like 99% of the population was, I don't fit in here. These are not my people for the most part. And for me, it was exacerbated by the fact that Key West is so remote and so small. And most people there were super easygoing, didn't have goals, just floated along with life. And I just woke up as this person who wanted to go places, learn things. And I wanted to go to what I like to call the real world. And as a result, I picked a college that was in Chicago. So I moved far away and got a whole lot of real world, not to mention a lot of real weather. But it worked for me because I really wanted to, I guess maybe that was my first reinvention. I wanted to be around other people that had goals and wanted to grow and stretch themselves as opposed to just hanging out at the beach and taking it easy. So I was a very different personality in that place. 
I grew up in Philadelphia. I've been here my whole life, but you see it a lot where the people that like, say when you're in Southern California or Southern Florida or Hawaii, they don't care about sports as much. And you wonder why, oh, they're not as passionate. The LA fans come in halftime, leave at the beginning of the fourth quarter. It's not as crazy as New York, Boston, Philly, but it's like, there's just so much to do there outside. Like it's warm. You can hike, you can bike or whatever they're doing in the water, surfing. You don't have that up North. And then you pr- devote your attention and intensity to other things where a game at the Boston Garden or in Philly is way different than a, a game you see in San Diego or you would see in Miami. They're just not as crazy. I think the weather has something to do with that. It does. Well, it's so darn hot. It leads to that. We call it the manana syndrome of uh, tomorrow. We'll do it later. Yeah, not today. We'll get to it. So it's a very different pace and a very different focus. Yeah, I could use it a little manana now. It's been a busy year. <laughs> yeah, so let's get into it. A couple things. Let's transition. I want to get into reinvention. So if they asked the 18-year-old version of Marshall Redmond what she wanted to be when she grew up, what would you say? Sure. So at 18, I wanted to be Katie Couric. I wanted to be on television doing hard-hitting news stories. I always had a bit of an interest in consumer stories. My my idea was always that there's got to be a better way to do this. That's my constant refrain from the age of 14 at my first job working at a shoe store. I was like, I think we could reorganize this. We could make this much more efficient. So always looking for a way to do things better and got an undergrad degree in broadcast journalism. So focusing on radio and TV and Fortunately enough, found out I was actually good at it. I understand when you were a reporter, I heard you covered a little trial called the OJ Simpson case. <laughs> I did. did you? Um, so that. fast forward. Yeah. So I went to law school in San Diego because that's where I was living. So I started working part-time at the TV station in San Diego while still doing law on the side. And I just happened to be at the TV station the day that it became clear that the OJ Simpson trial was going to start with a preliminary hearing. So what that means is it's like a mini trial. So I was just at the TV station that day working on a consumer story. And I just poked my head up and said, hey, this is important. This is like a mini trial. And so the boss said, oh, this is great. Okay, you're on TV three times today and for the foreseeable future. So I was just in the right place at the right time. That is cool. Just backtracking a little bit. You said it was no longer fun or fulfilling. Not only do I want to do something and make a good wage, but I want it to be fun and fulfilling. A lot of times those two are not there. Like the fun jobs are low paying or like the jobs that are really well paying and people are killing it. They're just stressed out of belief and they're not with their kids. And Brene Brown has a thing on this. Like she sees them all the time. The high achievers, the ones that went to Ivy League and they're top of their class of high school, top of their class in college, top of their class of grad school. And they do something. They had to be a doctor, lawyer or engineer. And she sees them at 40 and they have drinking problems. You know what I mean? And their marriages are falling apart because they're just so smart. They got A's and everything, but they hate what they're doing. They're handcuffed, right? Because they're making yes. so much money. They can't stop because they got two houses, two cars. They're eight, 16-year-old kids are driving Range Rovers. And they're just connected to this job, making a lot of money, but they hate it. So let's get back to that fun and fulfilling. What would you say to someone that says, you know what? You're crazy. My job is so stressful. It makes a lot of money. There's no way it could be fun or fulfilling. What would you say to that person? Sure. And I was that person. I make light of it. I gloss over the pain, but for me, practicing law at a large law firm, and it wasn't about the firm. It was a wonderful firm full of a lot of really great people. It was about the way law firms were. And I just wasn't willing to put up with it. It was so stressful and so painful and so boring. If it were stressful and exciting, stressful for a reason, for a purpose, that's different. But stressful and boring, I was just unwilling to do it. I became physically sick. 
It just did not suit me. And But unlike most people, to your point, I was able to quit. I was willing to quit. Yes, it was very risky. It was extremely scary. I was making way more money than I ever could have imagined making. I didn't do it for the money, but when you get those jobs, that's what they pay you. I just wasn't willing to settle. I really wasn't willing to settle. And I think that's what makes the difference is whatever scenario you're in right now, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? There is a way. You just have to jump. You mentioned you're not willing to settle, that it was risky, it was scary. Courage. To me, courage is like leadership. Are you born with it or can you create it and nurture it and become it? Is that something you can cultivate over a number of years and build up that tolerance for the risk and scariness and say, you know what, I'm not settling for this and make that leap? Like, where's that inner drive you think come from? Or how does someone gain that inner drive if they don't feel it right now? They hate their job, but they just don't have the courage to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've never thought of myself as particularly courageous, but I just felt like I had to. I absolutely had to. I felt like the the work was killing me, that I was shrinking and I was becoming just the job. And the job wasn't meaningful enough for me to be willing to do that. I really felt backed into a corner and I just had to make the change. I don't know. A lot of us have a lot of tolerance. I will say that I am a person who isn't driven by money. And so I want to be secure, but my notion of what secure means, I have a roof over my head, I have transportation, my needs have always been relatively modest in that sense, because I came from a very modest background. No one in my family went to college. No one in my family was a professional. And I didn't know a professional. I never knew other than a doctor. My dad was in the Navy, so we went to the Navy doctors. So for me, you know, the status, none of that stuff mattered. I wanted to do something that made a difference and that I found fulfilling and interesting. So maybe that helped. I wouldn't have parents that were disappointed because I quit my big time law firm job. All the other lawyers around me really didn't want me to quit. Mm -hmm. I think because then it it put pressure on them Mm -hmm. to look at what they were doing or not doing. I did have one friend though. He was at a big law firm. He was a real estate lawyer and they do tend to be happier. For some reason, real estate's just more fun than what the rest of us were doing. But he wanted to be an airline pilot. So he started doing all the training and doing all the stuff he needed and eventually was able to get a job flying cargo. And so he eventually quit the big law firm about a year or two before I did. And so that became my mantra. If Kevin can quit, I can quit. But similarly, he was unmarried and was able to unravel any big financial obligations that he had to set himself up to do it. Yeah. But I really think in the end, you have to sit down and decide, is the pain and lack of fulfillment in my life worth the money, the status, whatever it is, the security? Yeah. Because in the end, you just have to jump, Joe. You have to jump. Yeah. At the end, you just got to make the move. You got to jump. Do you remember the day you walked in a lawyer and you walked out a reporter? I recommend this to everybody. I did both at once. And so instead of having some hard and fast, I quit and walking out the door, I was able to transition slowly. So I was able to say to the second law firm I worked for, which was a women-owned boutique law firm, I was able to say, hey, my health is not great because of stress and X, Y, and Z. So what I'd like to do is go to part-time. So if you're okay with it, I'd like to work part-time with you. And then 
maybe figure out my next move. I was working part-time at my second firm and then working really basically almost for free, working part-time at the TV station because I knew I needed tape. You need stories of videotape of recent stories to apply for jobs in TV. And so that's that was how I made that transition, which I recommend. If you want to do something new, start doing it on the side, make money, get clients, get the next job. Try to do both at the same time because mm-hmm. abruptly quitting one thing before you've got the other thing at least partially in place is crazy. But now with the gig economy and virtual everything, it's so much easier to make these changes. I was making these changes in the 1990s. So it was a much different time. It's much easier now, I believe. Yeah. So you basically start one as a side hustle, right? And then say one's at full max, one's zero, but then you get the second one started and it's slowly going up. Then you slowly dial down the other one. Isn't this dramatic? I quit and you run out the you run out the office. Then you basically ba- move the boat close enough to the dock that it's a reasonable swim that there's a pretty good chance you're not going to drown and just swim out basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. You try to hedge your bets as much yeah. as you can. That's really good. So what was it like? You were in Tampa and a consumer reporter, investigative reporter for CBS TV, right? What was that like? Yes. It it was great. Getting the story was funny, actually. So I was working, doing this part-time thing in San Diego and still working at the law firm part-time. And I just started sending out lots of applications. So I started looking for all of the TV stations in the entire country that that were looking for a consumer reporter. And it occurred to me, Consumer reporters help the public with legal problems in many cases. And so I started calling myself the consumer lawyer reporter. So the job openings were for consumer reporters, but I branded myself as somehow being better. So it was like consumer reporter with a bell and a whistle. And that little bit of marketing actually got me a job in the Tampa market, which at that time was the 13th largest market in the country where I had no business being. I hadn't been on TV in quite a while and I'd never been on TV in a market anywhere near that big. But I was able to basically talk my way into it, partly because of the marketing, Consumer Lawyer Reporter, and also because I was a lawyer. I had that credential from an impressive US law firm. And so I talked my way into it. I actually had flown to Jacksonville to visit my dad, where he was then living. And since I was in Florida... I called all the TV stations in Florida that had any kind of openings and said, hey, I'm in your town this week. Can I swing by and meet you? I sent you a tape. And so I got two stations in Tampa to let me come by and meet them. And one of them was the station that eventually hired me. And I was able to say, I'm in town talking to the other guy, to both of them. When they offered you the position, what went through your mind? I was so excited. I felt, yes, I was right to leave law. This will be fun. I'll stretch my skills. This is absolutely perfect for me. And showed up. And on day one, they thought I was a regular reporter. They thought I'd been a reporter for recently and for years. And so I go in and the assignment editor says, hey, great to meet you. We have a hit at noon. We want you to run over. We're going to take you down to Tampa. There's a court thing and this and that and the other. And we've got somebody inside who'll fill you in on what happened that day in the court. We want you to do a live shot on the steps of the courthouse or something like that. And I was just sitting there, my eyes wide open going, I've never done a live shot. And they were like, what? I said, I've never done a live shot. I've only done taped stories. So that's when I realized, and I think they realized that I didn't have the skills they thought I had. And so I had to very quickly get up to speed 
and become really good enough to be in the market that I was in. So I definitely talked my way into something that was over my head. Yeah. But as I look back, it's a lifelong habit. If I think things through too much, I'm actually very risk averse and don't always give myself enough credit about what I'm capable of. So I found when I many times when I've made these giant leaps, I just haven't thought about it. I get carried away at trying to talk somebody into it. And I just jump and they give it to me. And then I land and I have to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, so I recommend it. I recommend it. You need to have some skills. You can't jump into something that you really can't do. Sure. Yep. But to push yourself, I found myself doing it at numerous points in my career. How long did it take you to feel to so like, you know what? I belong here. I'm good at this. I, it took probably a month or two. Okay. Yeah, it took cool. a month or two. And yeah. I was able to, they were able to plug me into a lot of other stuff that I definitely knew how to do. The only thing I hadn't done was a live remote. So you're standing outside in public with a little thing in your ear and there's a videographer in front of you and people are milling about and you have to trust that someone is going to protect you. If somebody tries to come up and do something to you while you're live on the air, this happens a lot. Just learning how to manage that situation. Because the standing and talking part, I had that down. It was just that particular scenario was new for me. The other thing that was really hard was doing commercials. So doing the little pitches. So they had me walk and talk and do a, hey, I'm Marsha Redman. I'm the new consumer lawyer reporter. I'm going to be doing stories like X, Y, and Z. And they had me do it in the studio. It was just, it was like day three. And it, it took a long time to get that to look comfortable. Yeah. Those are the two things that were a struggle. What's the most memorable story you covered during your time as a reporter? Gosh, there were so many. There was one that was related to a pretty ongoing scam there in Florida. It's probably still happening where they would put an ad for ridiculously inexpensive moving services. So to move your furniture, move your house kind of thing. And people would call them up and hire them and they come and they put all their stuff in their moving truck and then they'd lock it very dramatically and say, okay, you owe us, you know, they'd say they do it for 200 bucks. Suddenly they'd say it was 2000 bucks. You owe us 2000 bucks cash right now, or we're putting your stuff in our storage facility and the fees are going to be 200 bucks a day or something like that. So they were really taking advantage of people. These were thieves and it was systematic. So I, I was able to do an investigation that led to folks being put in jail. So wow. that was very satisfying because it was a pretty broad networked scam. Imagine that's yeah. awful. Moving, especially if you have young kids, is stressful enough, let alone someone takes all your stuff and they're like, that, that's crazy. So that's the second iteration of your career from a lawyer to a reporter. So at what point did being a reporter not become fun and fulfilling, to use your words? What point do you remember that? What happened? Yes, then? it was still pretty fun. So I was in Tampa. And then after Tampa, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So one of the things about TV news is every couple of years, you move to a new market. You mm-hmm. keep trying to move to bigger markets. And so you keep moving and you land in a new town, you don't know anybody. And a lot of times your work hours are... So for me, I worked three to midnight, five days a week. And sometimes those days included at least one weekend day. So it was hard to make friends. Your friends were cops and people who worked in the ER because they had the same schedule basically, which is fine, but it was challenging. So I picked Charlotte. Charlotte was good because I had a friend there, which was really nice. And I enjoyed it. But as that first contract started to run out, I could see the writing on the wall. 
Because what had happened in Tampa was they replaced me with someone from a much smaller market who was much cheaper mm -hmm. and also who wasn't a lawyer because lawyers, we tend to fight for what we believe in. Mm -hmm. And bosses like people who just roll over and do whatever they tell them. So in Charlotte, I could see I was 39 and I could see the writing on the wall. Everyone they hired was really young and really cheap. And I thought, I see where this is going again. Let me find my own thing. Really want to transition to something on my terms. And I want to use my skills in a different way. Basically, I wanted autonomy. The thing about working for big TV stations is they have all the power. They have all the control. And if they fire you or if they don't renew your contract, you have to move because there's a non-compete in that market. So you can't get a job at another station. So you're forced to keep moving. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So I sat down and did, you know, I can't remember what those things are called, but like a vision board. I just pretty much thought about what are my skills? What can I do that people would pay me for? What industries do I have experience in that give me credibility? And what of those skills and of those industries, what thing exists as a job that I could get that would be good for me? And over some period of time, I spent probably six months working on this and trying to figure it out. It occurred to me that the mistakes I'd made in the past as I was picking careers was I focused on the career itself instead of looking at what will I do all day long? What skills will I use that I'm good at and that I really enjoy doing? So for me, every job has the fun part. My husband's a college professor. So for him, I'm assuming, I've never actually asked him, the fun part might be lecturing. So lecturing to the students. Actually, for him, I would say the fun part is the research. He likes doing research. So for you in sales, the fun part is probably building the relationships and then actually getting the sales. Maybe at the end of the quarter, looking at how you've advanced, how you've grown your book of business and that sort of thing. For me, the fun part, the thing I absolutely love is standing up and talking. And I realized, oh, that's a thing called public speaking. But not just standing up and talking, which of course is what I did on TV, but giving useful information to the people in front of me about something that will make a difference in their lives. I realized mm -hmm. that was my sweet spot. So in the end, what I settled on was I was going to do media training for lawyers at large law firms because media training is when you teach people how to do media interviews for a purpose. So in professional services, lawyers, accountants, consultants, they do media interviews talking about hot business issues in order to build their practice or to raise their profile, to be seen as a person with expertise. So that's how I got out of TV was I tried to figure out how can I go into business doing media training for lawyers and other professionals. But it's something I recommend. If you can get a job doing the business that you want to create for yourself, even for six months, you'll learn a lot about how it works. So if I hadn't worked for that training company, I stayed for about a year, I would not have known how to sell training. I would not have known how to price training. This is a crucial piece, right? People that, that are professional public speakers often go out there and price themselves way too low. So you can't make a living. So working in it or working in something similar to it can help even for a very short time. The synthesize there. When you were going to your third iteration, when you reinvented for a third time, the big question you ask yourself is, what skills will I use and do I enjoy those skills? And I not only do I enjoy them, but am I good at them? And if you have read any Jim Collins, good to great, he has that hedgehog or it's something that you're good at. 
you can get paid for it and you would you enjoy it. It's like your passion, but are you good at it? And then can you get paid? And that little vein diagram, if that's sweet spot, it's kind of like what you're saying. It's, is there a need? Are you good at it? And do you enjoy it? Yes. And the fourth piece is what experience do you have? What education or training do you have that qualifies you to do that? And are you because qualified? Yeah. Are you qualified? Yeah. To sell your expertise, people need, you need to be able to articulate why pick me. The, the other piece was I, I had a real burning desire to do this because as someone who's very curious, that's why I became a reporter. Yep. I noticed that when I did interviews with really smart people, they were really bad at it. So physicians, lawyers, technologists, CEOs, founders of tech companies, none of them could do a decent interview mm-hmm. because this core thing was missing. They didn't understand they needed to translate their knowledge in a way that the audience could understand what they were saying and understand why they should care about what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was an epiphany. And and it is at the very core of everything I teach. And it's one of the reasons why I think I've been so helpful and so beneficial to all of the people I've worked with over the last 23 years, because nobody understands the most important thing before you open your mouth is knowing your audience, get their attention, keep their attention, give them value and communicate it in a way that they can understand and that they find interesting. It gave me a burning reason to proceed. Because otherwise, if you don't feel like I have a message or I have a skill here that's really needed, hopefully by a very narrow niche of people, because that makes it easier, that helps you when you start to second guess yourself, when you start to feel afraid, when you start to think, no one's going to pay me for this, or Mm -hmm. maybe I should go get another degree because maybe I'm not qualified enough. I had all of those thoughts. I still have those thoughts on a bad day. And I will say there was a point where when I was trying to get back into TV, I thought I should go get a master's degree in journalism. That will make a difference. And I got in and I almost plunked down a bunch of money, a bunch of loans for two years of a master's degree. And then at the last minute, I said, you know what? I still have law school debt. Maybe I should see if I can get a job without the master's degree. And then if I can't, I'll go. So That's another caveat is don't assume extra education is necessary. Try to pursue it based on the expertise, the experience you already have. And But that last piece, and I think it's important, Joe, is the more narrow you can be in in your reinvention. I only wanted to work with large law firms because that's where I came from. And so I knew they would respect me. One of the benefits of big law is that lawyers and others at those firms think you only have useful information in most cases, if you are them. And so it's a real barrier to entry for other people. And so it limited my competition and it made it easy for me to market. Yeah. One of the things you said there where you were almost plunking down for that master's degree in journalism. I was there, not in journalism, but MBA. There was no great prospects coming out of college, nothing that I loved. And my friend and I were about to just go get our MBAs. Not because we wanted our MBAs. We're like, it's basically sometimes grad school is a great place to hide for another two years to delay the hard decisions you need to make. Thinking I can go to school, it sounds like I'm still doing important work and go to school for a year or two. I remember the, the counselor I was talking to at the school, they're like, you don't need an MBA. You need to get some experience, find a yes. job, find your career path. And then like three, four years from now, if you do still want it, it'll be so more impactful that MBA because you have three, four years of real world experience. So it's like you decide not to get loans, 
more loans, which you know, debt on top of debt's never a great idea. And then on top of that, you're not hiding. You, you actually made a decision and moved something forward. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I did yeah. it. As I told the story, I dove in way over my head, yeah. but my skills got better really fast. Yeah. But the thing to know, Joe, is I agree. So for me, I worked as a reporter and I worked as a paralegal. So I worked for five years before I went to law school. And I think that was beneficial, but I'm agreeing with you hundred percent. Having some experience, having worked, it's the only way to figure out what you're good at, what you like, get some life experience. So I would say do that before you get a graduate degree. Understood. It helps you, it helps you figure things out and it gives you more to bring to the table as you're getting that graduate education. Let's dig a little deeper in your third career as a teacher, an educator, someone trying to up the skills of professionals, lawyers, executives. A couple of things you see out there. One, what you see a lot is really smart people are really boring when they present. Like They have the knowledge like out the scale. If they took a test on the subject matter, they'd get 105. Like they are just so knowledgeable, but they can't transfer the energy, enthusiasm, and knowledge to other people. They get on stage and people start checking their phones or they're virtual and they just lose the whole room instantly. So that's one, I want to cover that. Also, two, a lot of times really smart people, from what I've seen, are very introverted because they're in their head. They love spreadsheets. They love reading. They love being by themselves doing research. And then they get really nervous when they're in front of a crowd. Nervousness. So let's talk about not being boring. How do you handle nervousness? And just maybe powerful ways to present, little tips and tricks. So let's start at the beginning. Let's just go boring. What's the key to not being boring either live or virtual? Any takeaways there? Sure. So they're a little bit different in the two scenarios, although they're related. So in person, again, know your audience. You need to know your audience. So a lot of us lose our audience based on our content. So if you have control over your topic, which I hope you do, you need to make sure that you understand in the first instance who your audience is. Who are these people? Are they lawyers just like me or whatever I happen to be? Or is it a broader audience? So think industry conference, trade association. Those are a tough place to speak because you have a lot of different kinds of people there. And you need to grab the attention of all of them and help them to know right off the bat that you have useful, relevant information for every one of them. So I like to start out by saying, as you're aware today, we have technologists, scientists, lawyers, accountants, and salespeople in the room. And so as I speak about our topic of such and such, I want you to know that I have useful information for all of you. So let's start with how this issue comes up in the business world. Typically, we see blah, blah, blah. So what you're doing is you're letting them know, you're helping them understand you're not going to bore them, and then you start by placing whatever the topic is in the real world. Mm. Because a lot of complexity means we lose our audience. And if we come at something from a legal perspective, which is more narrow, we lose our audience. Mm. And so to orient everybody in the here and now, and saying, whatever the industry is, in oil and gas right now, here's how this issue comes up. It orients people in the current moment, and they understand it's going to be practical. We want to be able to take action on what you tell us. Tell me something I can use. Otherwise, I'm not interested. If you're going to start with the history of something and work your way forward to where we are today, Mm -hmm. I'm pulling out my phone. Oh, easy. The quickest way to lose someone is either say, hey, let me tell you about our company. No one cares. Nobody cares. 
Oh, or let me tell you the history of our company. We've been doing this for 47 and nobody, you just lost the whole room. Phones yeah. come out. Yeah. The, the synthesizer, you just said, one, know your audience, know who you're speaking to. Are they lawyers, they doctors, accountants, who are they salespeople, or maybe a mix of everyone. Then lead with some relevant information. Something that's relevant is actionable. Give them something that they can use five minutes after they listen to you and they can put in the, into action. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And the other piece of it really is, and I like to start with this within the first 20, 30 seconds. The way this issue impacts you is this. Here's why you should care. Because in the end, we only care about what affects us as people. And so even when we're talking about a business issue, to to really think about the roles of the people in front of you, how does this issue affect them actually on a personal level, and then work your way out. For you, a lot of people in this kind of role in this kind of industry could lose their job in the next three months. And here's uh, why. And here's how to protect yourself. And let's talk about the greater forces at work. So start with the actual person and mm-hmm. then work your way out from there because you've got to get people's attention. Okay. And so in person, it's easier to not pay attention because usually you're not 10 feet away from the speaker and they can look right at you while you're not paying attention. Yeah. So if it's a close in-person group, you can use your eye contact as a speaker yeah. to get people to pay attention. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe. But if you're in a giant conference, no, they can't because they're far enough away. They can just check out. Now, yeah. virtually to get and keep attention, a lot of the same stuff from a content perspective is still true is here's why this matters to you. I know who the audience is. Let's start with an example. So we're all understanding where we are. So that kind of content works in both scenarios. So in person, we've got our content right. We've said the right things. we got to have energy. Energy in person is about your posture, your gestures, how you use your body in the room to keep it interesting and to not be distracting, right? Mm-hmm. On Zoom, because we don't have so much body. So you and I today, Joe, we're on video, but our podcast audience won't see the video. You'll just hear us talking. But just think about the last Zoom call you were on. In a virtual presentation, it's very much being like a TV reporter, right? We're Mm. talking head video. Talking heads Mm. have authority. For decades, we've seen heads of state, experts, reporters properly framed as a talk. So your authority, your ability to get and keep attention when you're on video, part of it is how you look. So mm-hmm. you need to be properly framed. We need lighting that's good mm-hmm. enough for mm-hmm. our audience to read our expression. That's why lighting matters. Then here's the hard part. You have to make eye contact. And the only way to do that is to look right at the camera, which it's not easy. Yeah. I spent six months in broadcast school learning how to do it. So the trick is to get whatever else is on your screen. If you've got video of other people, if you've got notes or slides or anything like that, squeeze that up as Mm -hmm. high as you can so it's right under the webcam. Mm -hmm. So it'll look like you're looking at the camera even when you're looking at the video of the main person that you're talking to. Okay. And then the last piece, so the way you really connect virtually, the way you project energy. So we talked about in-person energy, a lot of the energy is your body. It's what you're doing with your body. Mm -hmm. Virtually, it's all voice. So if you're good on the phone, you can be really great virtually, because it's about a warm voice, a variation in pitch, and using your voice to get the energy across and to connect with the audience along with that eye contact piece. Yeah, that's great. Just to synthesize here, I love just that when you hear someone at the top of their game like you, they're just dropping wisdom. 
One, I love this. I'm going to steal this for my presentations at work. Like, here's why you should care, or here's why this matters to you. Like, you start with that. And that can't help but get your attention, especially in a small room with eight, 10 people. This is why this matters to you. This is how this is going to impact you. This is why you should care. Something like that. You give them the, like, the dessert right at the front. Like, here, this is why. And in the next 20 minutes is all about. The, the meat and potatoes of this. That's awesome. I love the energy. I forget who said the quote, but the quote is, you are responsible for the energy you bring into each room. And it's energy. I think in, in my little career sales, my first sales manager at the radio station, he said, welcome to sales where C students can make A student money. And the reason why is that one, you can bring a C student can bring energy, personality, enthusiasm, transmit that to the other person. They make a purchase and you bring that energy into the room, good things can happen if you direct it in the right way. Yeah. And I have to say, energy, it matters everywhere. Content's important, again, because in my world, I'm dealing with people that are communicating really complex information. And because that's hard, it's very boring. Most of them are very boring. But the truth is for everybody, whatever you communicate about for whatever purpose, and I don't just mean standing in front of a room and you've got slides behind you, hands down in the end, energy trumps all. Mm -hmm. Energy trumps all. You can't be spouting nonsense. But if you have awareness of your audience and you're really saying, hey, this matters to you for this reason, let me give you some useful information about it. It's going to work. And you don't have to be the A student or whatever the equivalent of that is in your scenario. Mm -hmm. If you have energy and you care, you have a purpose you have a reason for talking, you will get and keep attention and you'll be successful. Yeah. Just think of the friends you like hanging out with. Take this to the very basic level, like 30,000 feet. You have someone that maybe they're not your richest friend or best looking friend, but they're like positive energy and they just make you feel good. They're there and they're making you laugh and they're patting you on the back and your shirt looks great. Like you're so more inclined to hang out with that person, like the Debbie Downer when they walk in. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then getting back to virtual, what do you think of this? This one, I'm seeing this a lot in Zoom meetings. The people that do the fake backgrounds, like they're on a spaceship or like they're in that sterile room where everything's perfect like that. But like when they move, like their head kind of, is kind of wonky, like close by the outline of their body, like it's distorted. I find that they're almost like glowing on the sides of them. Like I find that completely distracting and like, Big thumbs down. What do you think yeah. about? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the I thing like about the virtual background is it it takes a lot more work to get a virtual background to work effectively so mm. that you don't lose your ear if you move or yeah. it's some crazy distracting thing like that. You're better off just using the Zoom function, blur my background. Okay. If you have stuff behind you, you don't want people to see. Yeah. And it's the case for many of us. So if you're in a small apartment in San Francisco or New York City or someplace like that, you just don't have a lot of options. So yeah. just blur my background. Yeah. That's all you need to do. It mine, so you you see me, no one else does, but I have a blue painting hanging on the wall and I have my wall lit separately from the ring light that's on my face. And so this is real. Yeah. Uh, people always think it's virtual. It's distracting to have part of your face disappear. Yeah. It no, really I totally agree. Yeah. Totally really agree. doesn't work. Yep. And then virtually, it's all about your vocals, your voice energy. Yeah. It's just all about your the energy, like your voice and the in your energy. It's all about yeah. that. Yeah. Now that's really, really good. Let's, uh, let's move on a little bit. How about give us like an effective way to handle nervousness? Say you got some energy, you know your stuff inside and out, you're prepared, all the basic things are checked off. But you know what? I just get nervous. It's like a human response. Maybe people's hands start sweating. Maybe they start stuttering. Whatever people's nervous ticks are. What do you say about someone that just gets so nervous when I present or speak? Yes. So 
Different people get nervous for different reasons. I think we all could be in a scenario that would make us nervous. So I've been doing this specific business for 23 years. There are times when I feel nervous. Mm. If it's because I haven't presented to a large group in a couple of years, which is true until yesterday, whatever the scenario is, the thing I like to do, I have three steps. What can you do before you present? Mm. Meaning you're presenting in a month and every time you think about it, you feel sick to your stomach. But instead of practicing, you just worry about it. So my thought is every time you think about it before you do it, visualize it going well. Make your own video in your head of I'm standing in front of the room. I have a slight smile on my face. I just finished saying something. The audience is smiling and nodding. A couple of people are taking notes. I feel really comfortable. That's it. Make that video in your head. And every time you think about the presentation in advance, play that video. So it sets a positive approach before you even do it. And it'll keep you from worrying. As you said, do the work. A lot of people think about practicing. They don't actually stand up and do it out loud. So stand or sit. You want to practice it in the same format that you'll be delivering it. Practice Mm -hmm. it out loud. Focus your practice on the opening, the transition from piece to piece, and the closing. You can spend a good 50, 75% of your time on those three chunks. If you nail the opening and transition to your first point or as good as gold, well, now settle in. You've made a great impression on your audience. And short of the ceiling collapsing on you, you're set. So work on that stuff. Do it out loud. A lot of people say they practice, but they really didn't. And then in the moment, as you're getting ready to go out, I recommend that you move your body. So go for a brisk walk just a couple of minutes before. Take a couple of laps around the floor, one floor below where you're presenting. So get your body loose and warm. Do some rolls. Roll forward to loosen up your shoulders. A lot of us carry our fear in our shoulders Mm -hmm. and our neck. So our shoulders come up and we look like Richard Nixon, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to loosen all that up. And then a few other things. If your mouth goes dry, You can just very gently bite your tongue and that will cause saliva to flow very gently. That solves that. If you have shaky hands and shaky feet, press them into the floor, press your feet into the floor, press your hands down on a table to get the blood flowing and to get that feeling out of it. But the most important thing is to remind yourself, I'm speaking for a reason. I have value to bring to my audience. That always works for me. It's not about me. It's not about perfect delivery. It's about me giving useful information to the people in front of me and knowing I've done my research, I've customized my content, I've done everything I can so that in this moment, I can give them useful information. And I think that gives us permission to not be nervous. It Mm. gives us permission to do well and to connect. Because here's the thing, when you're presenting, it's not about perfection. It's about connecting. And so we've got to get our stuff out of our way so we can connect with the audience. My best and favorite tip for not feeling as nervous is to plant active listeners in the audience. So active Mm -hmm. listeners are people who, from the moment you step out, will smile and nod. So you have a safe place to look. In my world of I'm teaching professionals to present to other professionals. Professional audiences are tough, man. They look at you with a stone face and the look on their face says, you've got 20 seconds. If you don't grab my attention, I'm pulling out my phone. So to have even just one person with a friendly face looking at you, so you've got one person to look at, you'll be much more successful because you won't become self-conscious 
in those first few seconds when you're trying to deliver your opening. Yeah. So you can plant a friendly person, either speak to people before you go out, make friends or ask an actual friend. I'm speaking today to the practice group, come sit in the middle, smile and nod for the first five minutes. That's great. My one sales coach, basically we're talking about being nervous before speaking. And he would say, your nervousness is going to be in direct correlation to your preparation. He says like nervous means not prepared. He took it away at 30,000 foot view. If you're nervous, you're unprepared. Everyone gets a little feeling, even if you are prepared, you have a little bit of a, like, like anxiousness, like anxious energy, can't wait to get going. But I get nervous when I know I did not properly prepare. Yes. But if I'm fully prepared, I'll be ready to go off some nervous energy. Like I want to do start now and it's 15 minutes before it happened. But it's not the fear of I shouldn't be up here because I yes. could have done a better job last week getting ready for this, right? Yes. And there, yeah, that's on you. Yeah. If you really haven't prepared. I think for a lot of us though, people with perfectionism, people that feel very judged, people that yeah. judge others, perhaps, we can put all kinds of crazy stuff in our heads that get in our way. Yeah. But the bottom line is, and I say this to my clients all the time, more in the moment that the people sitting in front of you. You don't need to know 12 extra years worth of more. You just need to know more right today and have the purpose of being helpful. Because if people ask a question you don't know the answer to, there's a response for that. I'll need to check the law, but I can tell you generally, this is what usually happens. There are always ways to deal with feeling like you don't know everything. You don't need to know everything. Hey, make your speech more narrow. Make it easy to give valuable information, design it. And this is, I spend a lot of time working with my clients on this because they have such complex information. Design a presentation that's easy to deliver. Don't make it complicated. Don't have part, sub part, part, sub part. Just start with, here's what really matters. Here's the effect of that on you, most likely in X amount of time. I'm going to walk through the four most important things you need to know about that so you can see it when it's coming and do something about it. Yeah. It's almost like the Steve Jobs. I think Carmine Gallo is the author. He wrote yes. like how to present like Steve Jobs. Anyone ever did a talk, read that book. And like Jobs would have nine slides and there were three slides sometimes. And they would just be pictures when they launched the pod back in the day. It was a picture of a jukebox because he said jukebox in your pocket. Then he had just the number a thousand. And he talked for a while about a thousand songs in your pocket and like just images. And he just told the story and he had images. Like it wasn't a million slides and bullet points and 16 bullet points. Like I get lost when someone has a slide and there's, it's a paragraph. Dude, this isn't a Word document. It's a PowerPoint. There should be a picture. Tell me the story. I don't want to read your slide. That's some great info. First off, thank you for sharing that. You shared a ton of great tips on how to not be nervous, how to connect with audiences, how to have a stronger presence virtually and live. Appreciate that. I'm going to transfer over to a part of an interview we call Share Your Secrets so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better as a person. Looking back, can you think of a failure that set you up most for future success? What's your favorite failure? Yes. My favorite failure was after landing that amazing job in Tampa and working through that contract, I was not renewed. They declined to renew my contract. And so I was basically walked out one day. We had been negotiating the contract. We hadn't come to a conclusion. And I figured we were still negotiating. But one day they called me in. I was out. I was on my way to go cover a story in the news truck. And they said, hey, come back to the station. So I need to talk to you. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Okay thinking they were going to give me a different story. So I come back in 
and I'm informed by the assistant news director, I'm sorry, we've decided not to renew your contract. The security guy is going to walk you to your desk. We have a box there for you. You can gather your things and he's going to walk you outside to your car. Crazy. How'd you feel so, when that happened? What, oh, what went through your mind? It's, it was the most shocking thing to ever, still the most shocking thing that has ever happened to me. Wow. It was blindsided doesn't begin to cover it. I was literally in shock. And for the security guard to walk me to my desk and everybody's looking and say, just put your stuff there, whatever. And everyone else was in shock too. They were all standing around with their mouths open. And so they walked me to my car and I somehow drove home. And then I was just like, oh my God, how am I going to pay the rent? Where am I going to live? Because I had to move. I wasn't allowed to work in that city, in that market, which is like a big market. But the benefit for me was it really started me thinking about the fact that I had no power and control as long as I worked as a TV news reporter because the TV stations can do whatever they want. If they decide not to keep you, there's a non-compete clause, which you cannot beat, which forces you to move away from that market. You have to get a job in a different market. And I just didn't like having that little power and control over my life. And so while I did find another job in another market, as I'd mentioned, I went to Charlotte, which was a great situation for me. All along, I still had that very strong impression of, I never want this to happen to me again. And there has to be a way for me to keep the good parts, which are standing up and talking and making a difference in the lives of people around issues that matter to them, solving their consumer problems and helping them, trying to put away the, the big scammers and all of that. Keep the good part but get more autonomy. When I reinvented, when I created this new job for myself of being a person who teaches communication skills to lawyers and people like them, I designed it intentionally. I wanted autonomy over what my topics are, autonomy over who I allow to hire me, autonomy over my time and the right to fire people. So we talked earlier about energy, how energy really, energy lets you connect with people. And when you're around people, you can feel their energy. And so you know who you like, who is compatible with you, who, when you walk away from a conversation, you say, wow, I really like her. Wow. I love talking to him. And so that's who I work with. Firms can hire me. And if I don't have a positive experience, or if I have a negative experience, I won't work with that firm anymore. And if they have a, a kind of a culture where people are mean and rough and disrespectful, I will not go back there. They're not allowed to have my services. I built that intentionally. And so much of that flows from that experience. Yeah. So that's a big learning. So you get you now that forced you to move on to the next iteration, the next reinvention. And now you can choose who you work with. You have autonomy. Yeah. That's huge. With all you got going on, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? I listen to music. Yeah. So for me, and I've taught this to my twin daughters who just finished high school, it, the greatest, the fastest and most effective way to change your state. So for me, it's all about energy and emotion. Fastest way to change your state. If I can't get into a positive energy, I can't create. I definitely can't make myself do hard things if I'm feeling low energy. And so for me, music makes a difference. And a lot of times if I'm playing music, I'm dancing around too. Awesome. So that's the fastest way. Or just walking. I was really tired yesterday trying to get home from, from Atlanta. 
when there were thunderstorms in DC, you know how that goes. So I was just playing earth, wind and fire in my thing and walking around in the airport, waiting and waiting to see if somehow they could find a plane to bring us home. And it helped. It kept me on a positive, upbeat. In the end, it's to be philosophical, Joe, in the end, it's all about energy Mm. connects us. Energy gets gets attention of we're trying to communicate with. And we really find out who each other is based on energy. And it's how I make decisions. How about what book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? I do. I do. Well, I have a couple. One of them. I love when they're like. I have it right here. And you can see, I love this book. Um, Dog-eared and tagged. Look at that. Dog-eared, tagged. It's twice as thick as it ought to be. It's called The Book of Beautiful Questions. And the author is Warren Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R. And the subtitle, which tells you a lot more, The Powerful Questions That Will Help You Decide, Create, Connect, and Lead. Mm. This book is worth its weight in gold. So for me, I found I've always been a very curious person. My mm-hmm. parents said that from the minute I could talk, I was always why, what, how. I was just full of questions, which so it shouldn't surprise you I became a reporter because reporters' jobs are to ask questions and to get good quotes that they can then use. So if you like asking questions and you love words, there is your job. Lawyers also tend to like asking questions and like words. And so there, there is that commonality. You asked me earlier, how can you get or become courageous enough to quit, courageous enough to say, you know what? I want a job that's fun and meaningful. Yeah. For me, it's about asking different questions. So I stumbled upon Tony Robbins decades ago when I was living in California. And the one takeaway I took from him was this notion of ask yourself better questions. The questions you ask yourself and others determine your life. And so I really took that to heart, which is why I started saying, how can I have work that I love that lets me use my favorite skill as often as possible? Work for people I like who will pay me well. So again, it's the questions you ask. Instead of just going, well, other people are lawyers, it's respected, their status, I should just gut it out. They're putting up with how painful it is. I should too. Regarding questions, even like in my career in sales, the quickest way to up your sales game is to increase the power of your questions. Yes, smarter, better, open-ended, emotionally engaging questions. There's that word again, energy or emotion to the customer. Because like weak salespeople ask weak questions, strong salespeople ask strong questions. It's the number one skill. And a lot of people will fight that, especially you'll see people inside like trainers or people like, oh, it's product knowledge. It's known the competition. All that's important. But your impact point is the question you ask a customer. Like, how do you feel? What do you see? How do you respond? What do you think? That's like the first level. And you get their, like how their mind turns. Then you can figure out like what product knowledge you need, but it all starts with questions. I appreciate that book. That's a great book. How about As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I'm working on a project. I still haven't figured it out. It's been kicking my butt now for a couple of years. But the thing that I'm excited about creating, and I'm making progress with it, is putting together a program for women to provide a short, focused experience in a small group where they can use their voice, where they can take themselves to the next level by speaking out with power and authority in a way that serves them 
and allows them to achieve what they want to achieve. Because I find that's where my heart is always focused. Being a woman who has been in a number of different careers and being someone that helps people to have presence, to speak with authority and confidence, and to get their messaging honed in so that they can get the attention and keep the attention of the audiences that they want to reach. That's my project. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I'm not sure what to call it, but this is a time of reinvention. And I know women especially are looking around and saying, this is not enough. I am no longer willing to commute. I am no longer willing to go to a job where I miss all of the great stuff my kids and my family are doing. Because we've had the experience of the pandemic, a lot of us have come to the conclusion that things have got to change. And I want to be there as a a person who can help people reinvent and especially to serve women because we're going to have to communicate to get there. We have to figure out what we want, and then we have to speak up to create it. And I think my past experience of having been reinventing myself every decade or so for a while can come into play. And as you've seen, Joe, I have specific opinions about how to do it. Reinvention is how you stay relevant. Even look at somebody who's crazy, Madonna. Like she, she was 50 years ago, she was famous or whatever it was, 40 years ago in the 80s. She's famous and she went through all these crazy phases and you may like her music or may not like her music, but she's still, she tweets something, 8 million people read it and comment. Like she's still relevant because how just how she kept reinventing herself. Like, that's really cool. And even Harrison Ford is an actor. Like Harrison Ford had was like the tough guy, then the leading man, then like the sexy dude. And then now he's like this old, like in 42, which was one of his best performances. He's almost unrecognizable. Like he's like this 80 year old guy in makeup. Anyway, the reinvention is great. Wrapping up here, I know to be respectful of your time. How about what advice would you have for that person that may be in a job that they don't love? Maybe they're getting paid pretty well. Their heart's not in it. They dread going to work. Maybe they need a glass of wine or after work each night, or maybe two glasses of wine and their heart's not into it, but they don't know what to do or they don't have the courage to do anything just yet. What advice would you have for them? Yes. I would say pay attention, do the work, uh, start a list, whatever you need to do. Leave yourself a video note every day, an audio note, whatever you need to do. Look for what are you doing when you feel 100% yourself? When you feel like you are standing in the center of who you are and what you're great at, what you enjoy, where you bring value, what are you doing when you feel that way? That will help you figure out what is your contribution? What is your skill? And then, and there may be a couple of things. You may say, well, there's this thing, but that's like a hobby. And then there's that thing. Just Take at first, don't judge it, just write it down. So gather information, but pay attention to how you feel. What's the thing you look forward to? It might be a skill, it might be a scenario. Pay attention to the energy and how it makes you feel. I think that's the key. That's the thing to follow. And then follow that and see where that leads. And as we spoke earlier, the process I would recommend is find a couple of those things where you really feel like yourself. You feel like, ah, this is me. This is my skill. This is my thing. And then look at what industry, what area do you have some experience in? What area needs that skill? Who, what do those people buy that's somehow related to that skill? How can this be something I can get paid for? And really pick it apart. You've got pieces, you're turning them upside down, you're rearranging the order. Think of it as just really turning it over and looking at it from every side. 
and see if there is some way that can be monetized, that you can enjoy what you do. For some of us, it may be that we're in a job and the only thing we enjoy is coaching other people. So great, go get a coaching certificate, do some research, find out. So maybe you don't have to quit the job you're in. Maybe you can shift because right now, so many people are quitting. So many jobs are open. You may be able to reinvent yourself in place, either permanently or just for now. Maybe you decide, again, with the example of coaching, that coaching is the thing where you come alive when you get to coach. Great. Get a coaching certificate. Get your current job to let you do more of it. Then you can take that experience and leverage it and go somewhere else. That's great. That's great advice. And again, we come up to that question word again. What are you doing when you're being yourself? That's, that's when you thinking. feel most like yourself. What are you doing when you feel most like yourself? That's fantastic. Yeah. Because that's that's the energy piece, Joe. And mm-hmm. I think it it really is that. I think that guides us. If we can be quiet enough to feel it, I think mm-hmm. if you follow that energy, but then apply your mind, Uh, that's the key. It's been the key for me. When I was brave enough to listen to it, there were decades when I was lost. So don't think this is necessarily overnight. Not a quick fix. Now, thank you for sharing that. Last two questions. One, if you could have everyone take one lesson away from everything we discussed over the last hour and change, what would that one lesson be? What would you boil it down to? Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for work that doesn't satisfy you, for a scenario where you're not treated respectfully. Don't settle. Awesome. Last question. Marcia, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? It wouldn't be a quote. First of all, I would never get a tattoo, but I get your point. I have it on my wall. You just can't see it, but it's a word. It's a word that changed my life as a young person. And the word is ebullient. So E-B-U-L-I-E-N-T. And it means someone with great energy, enthusiasm. It's someone, an older person, when I was maybe 16, I was at a Bible study. And this older person, he was a, a guy who was in the Navy. So at our Bible study, there were high school kids and then a bunch of Navy guys, just because of the guy that led the Bible study. And he said to me, you're ebullient. And I'm like, oh, great. Thank you. I think I didn't know what it meant. So I went back and looked it up and I thought I am, that is who I am. And, but at that point in my life, I didn't know that. I thought I was very shy and quiet, but when I got excited about an idea, I was that person. And so from that point forward, I started playing with that notion of that's the piece of me that grows and learns. That's the piece of me that I enjoy. So I wanted to be ebullient every day. So that's my one word. That is ebullient. That is about as good as a spot to end as any. Marshall Redman, I would like to thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for the awesome career advice on how to present on reinvention, how to get your virtual game straight, your live presentation straight. Marcia, if someone's trying to find you online, where can they find you? The easiest place to find me is to go to my website. So my website is my first name, Marsha.com, M-A-R-S-H-A.com. If you want to look for me on LinkedIn, you can find me. I'm Marsha Redmond, but there's no D on the end. And then if you're interested in being a better virtual presenter, 
or if you want to get an equipment list for the best inexpensive equipment to look great on video, you can go to presencetips.com. So that's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E tips, T-I-P-S.com. And you'll get a checklist that includes my, my favorite equipment. I will list all of those links in the show notes. Uh, but Marsha, thank you for joining us. It's great. I learned a this lot. This was I took, fun. I thank a, you. Oh, thank you. I took a ton of notes. Thank you for upping my presentation game. I'm going to put some of them into action. It was a lot of fun. And Joe, I'll look you up. I'm coming to Philly in spring of 2023. Okay. I'm speaking at a women's event. I look forward to meeting you live. Appreciate it. Sounds great. Thank you, Thanks. Joe. This was really fun. 